Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, it is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. It is only eight verses long, but it is by no means unimportant. In fact, and though this might be the result of some recency bias, this may be one of my favorite chapters in the book of Revelation. And it is uh, titled today, A Prelude to the Bold Judgments prelude to the bold judgments. Now that word prelude, um, it's defined as an introductory performance, action, or event preceding and preparing for the principal or more important matter. It, It is really an introduction of preparation. An introduction of preparation is what a prelude is all about. It is necessary because whatever is coming next is so big and it's so important that you just can't rush into it. It requires a prelude. It requires an introduction of preparation. And so Revelation 15 is the prelude, the introduction of preparation for the bold judgments to come next week in chapter 16. And it is necessary because the bold judgments are so big and so important that we just can't rush into them. They require a prelude. Much as we have seen already in prior judgments in Revelation, I don't know if you realize this or not, but as we look back on the sealed judgments, there was a prelude in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We had the the scene of um, uh, the the throne room where we saw God the Father and the Son. Uh, We had the judgment of the trumpets, and there was a prelude for that in Revelation 8, 1 through 5. And now today, prior to the bold judgments, there is a prelude in Revelation chapter 15. And one thing that you will notice about these preludes is that each of them takes us back to heaven to remind us that these judgments come directly from God's throne. He alone is the author of these judgments, which might cause us to scratch our heads and say, why? Why is there a seven-year tribulation? Why are there three waves of judgment? And ultimately, what are God's purposes in this terrible time known as the tribulation? Why would he bring all this calamity to the earth? If, if God is so good, where is the good in the tribulation? Have you struggled with that at all? As you just look at all the hard stuff, all of the really difficult things that we see in the tribulation, it's a great question, and I believe that we see God's grace and goodness in the tribulation in at least three ways. So let me share them with you. Number one, in the tribulation, we see God is glorified. God is glorified in the tribulation. He shows himself to be truly sovereign. He is truly Lord of the universe, and everything happens according to his divine plan. This isn't some haphazard chance stuff that's going on. This is God's stuff that's going on because he is on the throne. And just as John saw him in Revelation 4 in that that scene of the heavenly throne room in the prelude to the sealed judgments, that's the thing. God is on the throne. So that is one of the good and gracious purposes of the tribulation. God is glorified throughout it all. Next, number two, sinners are saved during the tribulation. During this great tribulation, we've also seen that there's what? Great revival. 
Great revival that takes place. In our, our study, we've seen that during the tribulation, God will raise up 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists who um, will go out and there will be such a harvest of Gentiles coming to know the Lord that you can't even count them. Such is the nature of the great revival during the great tribulation. God will raise up two special messengers, Moses and Elijah, to show up on the scene and to once again preach that people might come to know the Lord. And then um, at the very end, we see that these three angels, come and they're flying overhead and they're proclaiming the goodness of God and warning about the judgments to come. And so for so many lost sinners, the tribulation will be necessary to bring them to faith. Just as it took a tribulation or two to bring many of you to faith. Am I right? Something about tribulation in our lives God has our undivided attention, and so it will be during the great tribulation. It's a, a part of God's severe mercy, an expression of his love and his desire for all mankind to be saved. And then thirdly, what are God's purposes, his good purposes in the tribulation? Evil is defeated. Aren't you glad for that? You know, when, when we get to the end of the tribulation, Satan will be bound. God will usher in Christ's 1,000-year kingdom. And eventually, we'll get to the new heaven and the new earth where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. But before that can happen, evil must be defeated. And God does that during the tribulation. And so there's a lot of good and grace during the seven-year period of judgments. Well, that brings us to Revelation chapter 15, the prelude to the bold judgments. Let me read the passage for us this morning. The Apostle John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. We pause and pray and ask for God's help right now. Father, again, this is a shorter passage, a shorter chapter in Revelation, but there is so much here that you have to say to us today. May our hearts be good soil, and may you sow the seed of the word in them, and may it take root and bear much fruit. And so clear away all the distractions, help us to focus, and hear what you have to say to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so this is the prelude to the bold judgments, an introduction of preparation that comes to us in two parts. 
two different scenes. There is a scene of worship in verses 1 through 4, and there is a scene of woe in verses 5 through 8. So let's first of all look at this scene of worship. Verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And so in response to that, can we just all take a deep cleansing breath? A sigh of relief to celebrate the fact that we are finally reaching the end of the tribulation. Isn't that good news? The end of the three waves of judgment, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bulls. I don't know about you, but it's been rather exhausting for me to kind of camp out in these judgments each week. But yet here we are finally reaching the end of the great tribulation. There are much brighter days ahead of us in our study of Revelation, including Christ's glorious appearing, his millennial reign in the new heaven and the new earth. So hang on because good stuff is coming. What does John see here in verse 1? It says he sees seven angels with seven plagues. The seven plagues mentioned here are, in fact, the bold judgments that will be poured out next week in chapter 16. And these seven angels are the agents who will deliver them. And so John is setting the scene for us in this prelude of preparation. Verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we've seen this sea of glass before. Do you remember? Back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, it's that prelude to the sealed judgments, John's vision of the throne room of heaven, where it said in 4, 6, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. The sea of glass is important. It's meant to communicate to us God's separateness his otherness, the fact that you just can't casually and haphazardly run into God's presence. For the fact of the matter is, he is holy, holy, holy. And here in verse 2, that crystal sea is a bit different than it was in chapter 4. How is it different? Here, it is mingled with fire. This fire is a symbol of the judgment that is to come in chapter 16. It tells you that something is brewing and that something that is brewing is God's holy wrath as the bold judgments are poured out on the earth. And so John sees seven angels with seven plagues and the sea of glass mixed with fire, all as a prelude to the bold judgments. And next he sees in verse 2, he also saw those who had conquered the beast. Those who had conquered the beast. Now, who are these people? These are the tribulation saints who had been martyred for their faith. These are those who had put their faith in Jesus alone and refused to worship the beast, even though that they were persecuted, they were tortured, and eventually killed. And surprisingly, it says they conquered the beast. Like, how is that even possible? By all appearances, the beast conquered them, right? After all, the beast put them to death. How can they be the ones that conquered the beast? Well, because it says in chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered the beast by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You know, much as it appeared that when Satan put Jesus to death on the cross, it appeared that Satan had conquered, didn't it? So it will appear when the Antichrist puts these martyred tribulation saints to death that he is conquering them, but it couldn't be further from the truth. For we know that 
For the, for the believer, death is not the end of the story. Am I right? It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of these victorious, conquering, tribulation saints standing next to the glass sea mingled with fire. They have conquered the Antichrist, even and especially through death, through Jesus Christ. Well, what are these conquering tribulation saints doing by that sea of glass mingled with fire? Look at verse 3. It says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It's no surprise that what these folks do in the presence of God in heaven is they worship. Whenever we get a glimpse of this heavenly throne room, what's going on? Worship. And so it is here. And their, their worship has a certain liturgy to it. You know, um, here at First Baptist, um, we, we tend to sing a, a three, maybe even four songs. Well, here they have a two-song worship set, okay? First of all, they sing the song of Moses, and then they sing the song of the Lamb. So let's look at each one of these songs and see what we can learn from them. First of all, the song of Moses. And let's just re refresh our memories of what that story in Exodus is all about. God's people were cruelly enslaved in the land of Egypt for 430 years. And so they cried out to God for deliverance. And he answered by raising up a deliverer named Moses. And I came across a great, great quote about Moses this week. It said, Moses was a man who the Lord could trust and who trusted the Lord. That's a powerful testimony, isn't it? A man who the Lord could trust and who trusted in the Lord. Well, when Pharaoh would not listen to Moses, the deliverer, and would not let God's people go, God sent plagues upon Egypt. And bookmark that in your brains, if you would. Okay, God sent plagues on Egypt. He sent 10 of them to be exact. Water into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and death of the firstborn. And interestingly... There are, in fact, some incredible similarities between these plagues in Exodus and the bold judgments in Revelation. We'll talk about that next week. Finally, Pharaoh could stand no more. After the death of the firstborn, it's like, I've had enough. Go, Moses, take your people and leave after these ten devastating plagues. And so he released God's people from bondage, setting them, sending them into the wilderness. And what a beautiful sight it must have been as Moses led God's people to freedom after 430 years. Until Pharaoh and the Egyptians, being double-minded, had a change of heart. And they decided to hotly pursue Moses and God's people to bring them back to bondage in Egypt. And it all came down to that one climactic moment when God's people were confronted by the Red Sea in front and the Egyptian army behind. Um, you guys have seen The Prince of Egypt, right? That, that's a pretty cool movie, to be honest with you. I, I like that one. This is the ultimate rock and a hard place. Death by drowning in the front or death by sword behind, unless God somehow miraculously intervened, which he did through his servant Moses. Moses, who took his staff and by the power of God parted the Red Sea, making a way where there seemed to be no way. Enabling God's people to cross over on dry ground. Well, the Egyptian army, they saw what was happening. 
And they continued their pursuit on the dry ground between the walls of water, which ended up being a really big mistake because God's hand was against them. Never a good thing. And the wheels came off their chariots. There was confusion and panic in their ranks, at which point the walls of water crashed in upon them. Pharaoh's army was completely destroyed in the midst of the Red Sea, and God's people were miraculously delivered. Well, it was at this point that God's people worshiped, appropriately so, right? And they sang a song of praise to God for the miraculous way he had delivered them from their enemies. And this came to be known as the Song of Moses. And it's really encapsulated in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, where it says this, The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And so that's the origin of the Song of Moses. But what it raises the question for us today is this. What does that got to do with the prelude to the bowl of judgments? More specifically, why are tribulation martyrs in heaven singing the Song of Moses as the first song of a 2 song worship set. Well, if we look closely, we're able to see some striking similarities between these tribulation martyrs and the Israelites, between Exodus and Revelation. So check this out. I love this stuff, okay? So on one hand, you've got the Israelites standing by the Red Sea. You've got the tribulation saints standing where? By the glass sea. You've got the Israelites who conquered Pharaoh, and you've got the tribulation saints who conquered the Antichrist. The Israelites conquered Pharaoh by the blood of the Lamb, just as the tribulation saints conquered Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb was about the Passover for the Israelites, just as for the tribulation saints. It was also about the Passover, but as fulfilled by Jesus, the Lamb of God. Isn't that beautiful? Commentator Warren Wiersbe, he said it this way, he says, The entire scene is reminiscent of Israel following the Exodus, the nation had been delivered from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb, and the Egyptian army had been destroyed at the Red Sea. In thankfulness to God, the Israelites stood by the sea and sang the song of Moses. So you guys know how excited I get when I see Scripture connect, right? And uh, we see this beautiful, beautiful connection here, this, this consistency, how it all goes together. This is one of those times. And again, we'll see more of these connections next week with Exodus and the bold judgments. So the tribulation martyrs, they, they sing the song of Moses as the first song in their two-song worship set, but they, they also sing another song. They sing the song of the Lamb, and it goes like this. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. We could probably assume that this isn't the whole song. This is probably a sample of the full contents of the Song of the Lamb, but what we do have tells us some key things. First of all, the Song of the Lamb extols God's actions. The Song of the Lamb extols God's actions. What are his actions like? They are great. They are amazing. They are just. And they are true. 
Now, why is that especially important for us to be reminded of right here in the Revelation story? Well, because we got the bold judgments next week, and we might question whether these things are true. And so we are reminded in this prelude, I think that's why the prelude is so important, because in the midst of all the devastation to come, we might be tempted to question God's actions, and this settles any question that we may have. Also, the Song of the Lamb reaffirms God's status, his status. Who is he? He's Lord. He's God. He's almighty. He is king of the nations, and he is holy. And because of his matchless status, he alone has the authority to rule and to judge. He acts in a manner consistent with his status. Again, important for us to remember on the eve of the bold judgments. And then finally, the song of the Lamb proclaims the coming of universal worship. The coming of universal worship. Look with me again at verse 4 where it says, All nations will come and worship you. Here's the thing. Ultimately, people will give glory to God. They will give him the worship he deserves either voluntarily or involuntarily, right? But make no mistake, at the end of the day, as it says in Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So whether in heaven, whether in hell, every soul will finally acknowledge that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. There will be universal worship. Now, it's interesting to examine, again, how the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb relate. Commentator John Phillips, he says it this way. He says, the song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last. The song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. The song of the Lamb deals with these same three themes. And so again, I get excited. I get excited when these connections are made in Scripture. They are truly beautiful. What a treasure, a beautiful, artistic, wonderful, authoritative, inerrant piece of beauty we have in God's Word. So that's the scene of worship in the first half of this prelude to the bold judgments. And I think you again see the necessity and why it is there. Next, um, a scene of woe in verses 5 through 8 as we begin to ease our way into the intensity of the judgment to come in chapter 16. Let's pick up with verse 5. It says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And I'm quite intrigued by that phrase, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. What's it, what's it talking about? Well, as you've probably already guessed, it refers to the temple in heaven, which is the prototype for the earthly tabernacle and temple, right? 
And here it is described using tabernacle language. It is the tent of witness. So you remember our study of the tabernacle. I'm so glad we did that a couple of years ago because it really helps us as we march our way through Revelation to understand what some of these things are talking about. The tabernacle was that portable place of worship that the Israelites could pack up at a moment's notice and move as they journeyed through the wilderness. And the centerpiece of this complex was a tent that functioned as a sanctuary. And that tent had two rooms. It had the holy place and the most holy place, which were separated by a curtain, by a veil. And the most holy place was so called because it contained the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid of that Ark was called the mercy seat. And it was the place where the very presence and glory of God would dwell among the Israelites. And now here in Revelation 15, 5, it calls the heavenly tabernacle slash temple the sanctuary of the tent of witness. And I think that word witness references the contents of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember what was in the Ark? Well, here's what was in it. Uh, First of all, within that ark, underneath the mercy seat, was Aaron's rod that, if we go back into the Old Testament and read, miraculously budded. It also contained a jar of the manna that the Israelites collected in the wilderness. And it also contained the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now, each of those items in the ark bore witness to God's abiding presence and his provision for the Israelites. And so I think that's why this is referred to here in Revelation 15:5 as the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Well, what does that have to do with this prelude to the bold judgments? Why is it important to know that the tent was opened on the eve of the bold judgments? I believe the key is to understand that what is about to happen comes from the place where God dwells. And it highlights the fact that he is the cause. These judgments come from the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly tent of witness, the sanctuary. And that temple bears witness to God's character throughout the centuries, his power, his provision, and his perfection. All right, let's move on to verse 6. It says, And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. Well, what is the significance of their clothing? It's pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. I think there are two things that really are significant about this. Number one, the clothing that these angels wear is pure. John notes this. It's important to him. He writes it down. The clothing that these angels wear is pure, signifying that what is about to take place is, in fact, holy. It is holy. This is not God, as as, as the bold judgments are poured out, this is not God flying off the handle in some uncontrolled fit of anger. This wrath is rooted in holiness. Holiness that is represented by what the angels here wear. Second, this clothing is priestly. It is priestly, signifying that what is about to take place is being executed by God's representatives. Priests represent God to the people, right? So it is here with these angels. As they wear this priestly garb, this tells us that they are God's representatives. And so as they pour out the bold judgments, they do so as God's representatives. 
but they do so also in his good and righteous character. So that's the significance of the clothing. Next, verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You remember these guys, the four living creatures? We saw them a while back, back again in Revelation 4, 6, in the prelude to the sealed judgments. Let's read that passage. It says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. Sounds familiar. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And it probably, it probably looks something like this, an artist's rendering of what these living creatures may be like. These living creatures are most likely a special, exalted order of angelic beings. A special, exalted order of angelic beings. And you recall that angels are highly, highly organized around an ordained hierarchy. These four living creatures seem to be at or near the top of the angelic order, which is very important. It says to us here in verse 7 that these special angels are the ones that give out the seven bowls full of God's wrath to seven other angels who will deliver them. There's something significant about these bowls themselves to which we should pay attention. The Greek word here translated as bowls is philos, which means saucer that is shallow, like a shallow bowl, meaning that the bowl judgments will be poured out quickly and completely. This isn't like a bucket. This is a shallow saucer quickly dumped out. Just as we'll see next week in chapter 16, this will be an intense quick-hitting series of judgments, one right after the other. And then lastly, the passage concludes in verse 8 with, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It's, it's been in vogue for some time now that um, when athletic teams take the field or the court or the ice, that smoke machines are used, right, to create dramatic effect. Loud music plays, the crowd cheers, and the message is that something monumental is happening. Drama is unfolding before us. And so it is here in verse 8. The power and glory of God are about to be unleashed. And the atmosphere is one of holy smoke, so glorious that no one could bear it until the bold judgments are completed. So such is the gravity about what is to take place, and that's why we need a prelude, an introduction to prepare us for what is to come next week, because if we didn't get all this ahead of time, we might get the bold judgments wrong. So there we have the prelude to the bold judgments. We have a scene of worship in verses 1 through 4. We have a scene of woe in verses 5 through 8 as it eases us into the intensity of what is to come next week. Let's take a few moments to wrestle with how should we then live. And to be honest with you, what really hit me the most about this passage was not something I expected. Maybe it's going to be more just personal for me, but I think it has something very personal to say to you as well. Because in this prelude to the bold judgments, and again, this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen to the earth. As bad as the seals have been, as bad as the trumpets have been, this is going to be worse. 
the worst thing that's ever happened to be the earth. The message that I took away from Revelation 15 was this. Rejoice in the goodness of God. Rejoice in the goodness of God. And you say, Chad, where did you get that? <laughs> you know, in this passage, on the eve of the bold judgments, the worst thing that's ever going to happen on the earth, how did you get rejoice in the goodness of God? Well, follow me here. Rejoicing in the goodness of God was the posture of the Israelites by the Red Sea, wasn't it? As they sang the song of Moses. And rejoicing in the goodness of God is the posture of the martyred tribulation saints by the glass sea as they sing the song of Moses and they also sing the song of the Lamb. And church, this ought to be the posture of the living saints today, regardless of what tribulation we may be facing. And what's interesting, um, those tribulation saints who had been martyred, you know, you, they, you, you would understand if they were sitting or standing by that glass sea and either, A, they're kind of complaining and grumbling about what they had to go through, right? Like, do you know what I went through to get here? You know, all kinds of grumbling and complaining about the hardships that they'd experienced. That's not what's on their lips. Or they could have been patting themselves on the back and saying, look at us. We're martyred tribulation saints. Aren't we special? Aren't we wonderful? And here we are by the glass sea. But neither are they grumbling, nor are they patting themselves on the back. What is their focus? Rejoicing, worshiping on who it is that is before them. And as we are exhorted in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Why that word always just grabs you, doesn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always. Regardless if you feel like things are going good, regardless if you feel like things are going bad, we are commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. Why? Because our God is on the throne. And he has saved us wonderfully by his grace. Everything else pales in comparison, which is why the Apostle Paul, who knew a few things about suffering and tribulation himself, didn't he? Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. Now there's one really big difference between the Israelites at the Red Sea and the martyred tribulation saints by the glass sea. What is it? Jesus... I'm thinking this, it wasn't long before the Israelites stopped rejoicing and started grumbling, right? Forgetting the goodness of God as they traveled through the wilderness. And church, if we're not careful, we can do the very same thing. Wonderfully saved by God's grace, having our eternal destinies secure in him, and yet here we are over here grumbling about secondary issues that don't really matter. The truth of the matter is you can either rejoice or you can grumble, but you can't do both, right? It's like the whole James thing about fresh water and salt water coming out of the same mouth. It doesn't work. Out of the same fountain, doesn't work. You can either rejoice or you can grumble, but you can't do both. And so we've seen here today in the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, um, and again, there, there are certain traditions who, who overuse this as a cliche. God is good all the time. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, but it's true, isn't it, right? It's absolutely true. Even 
in the great tribulation, even in the bold judgments. God doesn't change. He is good all the time. And guess what? That applies to our small t tribulations as well. Some of you are wrestling with that today. I know. I've been there. All right? You're going through something hard, and you, you just question, God, are, are you there, and are you good? And I hope that something from this message today might just be a reaffirmation in your own heart and life that regardless of circumstances, regardless of tribulation, God is on the throne, and he is good, and he is loving, and he is fully worthy of our constant rejoicing. Just as it says in 1 Chronicles 16, 24, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. You guys know that old chorus, right? God is so good. Can we do that right now? God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. One more time. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. And so, church, on the eve of the bold judgments in Revelation chapter 16, today, on May 23rd, 2021, may we believe in God's goodness, may we live out God's goodness, and may we rejoice in God's goodness. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for this reminder today of your character. And as we see our predecessors in the book of Exodus who worship you with the song of the Lamb, and as we, we're literally able to see into the future the song of these martyred tribulations. If they haven't sung the song yet because they haven't been martyred yet. They're not there yet, but we get to see it before it happens. And they're going to sing the song of Moses and they're going to sing the song of the Lamb. In addition to that, all of which, again, blows our minds and reminds us of your goodness. And so, God, I pray for those who are here this morning who are struggling with that, who are wrestling with that, and who feel like questioning. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe he's not even real. Maybe he's not really on the throne. God, may this passage of Scripture do something to refresh them and to rejoice in your goodness, regardless of what tribulations we might be experiencing right now. We thank you for your constant and abiding presence and love for us and your goodness, and we celebrate this in Jesus' name. Amen.